and you're back with the Looking Glass Forum. We are raising your consciousness. We are penetrating the web of disinformation, restoring the foundations of historical insight so you can discern the veracity of proof from the inventive schemes of these media-driven propaganda wars. The lies are many, but the truth is one. So you're back here with the Looking Glass Forum, and we're fearless on this uh, podcast to state what we believe to be the unequivocal truth of the matter. And we have our beautiful constitutional protections and our freedom of speech here to discuss some of the most probably difficult and impenetrable topics of the day. While all these social conflicts and this wild political infighting breaks out across the cities of America and throughout the civil society, we have been pointing out and working hard to make the case that the economic overlords, the international elite, who will simply fly away to chateaus in France or in Portugal when America begins to collapse in flames under the weight of all this superimposed political upheaval, and that these powerful interests have absolutely no plans in allowing American popular government to continue to exist. It's clear that all the plutocrats in media, in Hollywood, the Google, Facebook, Twitter, tech lords, the international bankers, the United Nations and World Health Organization, global government masters, are all one united cabal. One unit of Illuminati intelligentsia, globalists who mean to reduce the American nation, the free world, to a smoldering third world village. And this is undoubtedly obvious and undeniable. It's not a question of whether we can discover the, the horrible atrocities of Epstein's pedophile island. It's not whether we can finally elect a government in America that will establish and restore our constitutional freedoms. It's a matter of whether any of us will be alive or free and not starving in our penury and impoverishment to be able to stand up and fight this new era of global tyranny. Our position in the world as the epitome of free society and economic stability is not in any way guaranteed. In fact, a look at history, it becomes clear that the emergence of political liberty in democratically elected republics is a matter of history. They are such a rare occurrence in over in the, in the, the last 10,000 years of human history that only a few small centuries have witnessed the rise and ultimately the fall of self-government. The vast lion's share of human history has been held under the brutal dominion of slavery, tyrannical autocracy, imperious religious oppression, arbitrary monarchical dictatorship, and all these three syllable terms are simply indicating the dictatorial state that crushes the peasant class, the serf class of full of serfdom, and reduces human beings to subjected slaves bowed at the feet of a divinely mandated ruling class. And these are mere antonyms, opposite articles describing statism, the diametrically opposed enslavement of the people. And this is what the liberties established by free men toward the cause of self-government, a national republic whose jurists were democratically elected by a free ballot, were intending to finally end for all time. We have to point out that it takes men who could free themselves to become free men in order to free men. Slaves and serfs and peasants cannot free men. They cannot arm themselves. They cannot educate themselves. 
They cannot teach themselves to read in enough time, in a lifetime, in order to fight this fight for freedom. Although we might point out that Abraham Lincoln did teach himself to read. But in America, we established a national republic whose jurists were democratically elected by a free ballot. The idea seems so obvious and simple, yet there are no democratic republics that survived history. Athens and Sparta were destroyed by war and consumed by a tyrannical imperator or overlord. Imperial Rome also was a republic that descended into war and gradual debasement by growing an ever-larger population of slaves until the slaves were so numerous that slave revolts and outside invasion by barbarian tribes who could never forgive Rome's terrible conquest of war and enslavement would overrun the Roman Empire. Similarly, 1,700 years before the collapse of the Roman Republic, into the tyranny of the Caesars, Egypt also was an autocratic dictatorship under the divine monarch of a god-king, who was not only absolute autocrat, he was also the high priest of the Egyptian cult. All Egyptians served the arbitrary whims of the pharaoh, who was in communion with all the gods of Egypt. He was himself defined. The pharaoh also conquered other tribes and held numerous populations of slaves, which were kept as mere inhuman property. So it becomes obvious that there is no guarantee that you will not be enslaved. There's no guarantee that there's a power or a fortress or a military or a police department or some defensive force that can keep you from being enslaved in chains into servitude once again. A foreign power, a communist regime could invade our country, kill millions of Americans, and enslave the rest. These newly enslaved could be taken away, herded like livestock, and shipped off to a foreign land, there to be worked to death, and never heard from again. Who's to stop it? Such an ill-fated people would no longer be called Americans. The idea that America is associated with slavery, or that somehow that America is anything but the fight for freedom against slavery, is sheer nonsense. It's sheer disinformation and propaganda meant to teach your children to hate the country that your ancestors built for you, as the final life raft, the final bulwark against tyranny. And yet, here you are, burning it down, throwing rocks at the police force that are here to defend the rule of law, degrading the military, the amazing military officers and soldiers who are here to make sure that this great land stays free. And what are you doing? What are you doing to preserve the freedom that your ancestors have won for you? The freedom that our ancestors had won for the emancipation of the slaves. So we have to discuss that more. We need to take a closer look at America and the constitutional liberties, the fight for freedom against European monarchical tyranny and Vatican-led empire that meant to keep all the peasants and all the serfs burned up by the inquisitional stake, imprisoned in the bastille towers of, in the dungeons of the Dark Ages. No one could read, no one could write, no one could learn how to have the skills necessary to establish and preserve the freedom for themselves and for their children and posterity. So when you're kicking out the legs out from under the stool of this great democratic republic here in America to collapse it into socialism, you ought to know that there are many Americans who are going to fight you to the death in order to keep you from doing it. And you ought to understand that once you collapse this great free republic into a calamity of flames and street riots and racial wars and crime waves, that there will be no one to save you. It's amazing to me why how I watch these people fighting over the paint, the Black Lives Matter paint on the streets, as people are trying to protect the, the mural on the street that says Black Lives Matter, and other people are trying to throw the paint on the Black Lives Matter and the defund the police logo, and then whenever somebody throws paint over it, other people call the police to come in and arrest these people who are 
throwing pain on the defund the police mural, you're being descended into a psychological war. And if you're not prepared to fight for your freedom, then I'm afraid that you're going to become a victim of those who are. Become a victim of the battle and the war that's going to rise up to defend this great republic. So as we're looking at the devaluation of our currency and the destabilization of the entire government apparatus through the dialectic process of the right versus left conflict, it's being used as a wider agitation to, to disrupt the progress of the civil society and to bring about a constant agitation of one political group against the other. And as they begin to defund the police, collapse government, bankrupt huge sections of the government within California and other areas where they're absolutely going into hundreds of billions of dollars of debt. And as they continue their COVID-19 lockdowns and keep people from freely interacting with the free society, you have been enslaved by socialist tyranny, a system that can tell you whether you're even able to use your devaluing fiat currency that's soon going to be hyperinflated into just total garbage. And as the police can no longer come to protect you and the firemen can no longer come to put out the fires in your businesses and your communities and the, the wider federal government can no longer protect or provide the benefits that it once did, you have the right to defend your own life and your liberty and your own property with your constitutional right to bear arms. And you have the right to establish a free government to protect your interests from all enemies, foreign and domestic. And you will have to defend your liberties and your constitutional protections with your own life on the line. The British invaded in 1812, and they burned the White House. Many men in the army had to fight to the death to repel them. Many died in 1812 to preserve American freedom. And what have you done? Are you for us? Are you against us? If a massive foreign military sends an invasion force over the sea, will you prepare to defend America, or will you work to help the invaders? Will you work with communist groups like Antifa and BLM? and revolutionary abolition movement and the communist front and these democratic governments with their COVID-19 lockdowns. You must have the courage to see that there is a fifth column of international elites, many of whom were on Epstein's flight logs to his pedophile island and who are foaming at the mouth like ravenous wolves to see this country disintegrate into a permanent ruin. And what have you done lately to preserve freedom? to stand up for American liberties. Other people are paying for your Section 8 and your welfare and your food stamp programs and your local government benefits, your local hospital, your local fire department. What happens when the economy collapses and the government can no longer support these services, support your food, and can no longer support civilization itself? Yet, racialist hate groups have made a mockery of our democratic system and have reduced us into street riots and race wars and violent demagogic insurrection. That's right. You have to look at the book, The Coming Insurrection by the Invisible Committee. This has all been planned out. I think it was in 2012 they came out. They already planned all this out. But you didn't know anything about it. You had no idea what was happening. And so these groups who have no conceivable right to burn and loot civil society, that civil society belongs to me. My taxes and ancestors built up this wonderful civil society. And it's not theirs to destroy. We ought to shoot them dead or hang them from a tree for being a traitor an insurrectionist, and an enemy of our nation in destroying our society because of an idea virus, because of a, a socialist ideology that thought that they could go out and destroy the things that they see around them in the, in the world that were not made by them, things they can't comprehend. I think that very soon, in the chaos of civil strife, we might just see that come to pass. If the police are being arrested for trying to keep the peace by socialists in the government, and then they are being beaten to death by socialist 
direct action mobs in the streets and the politicians are frozen with inaction by electioneer politics, then free men must act without hesitation to protect and defend freedom for themselves, for their families, and for us all. So after having said that, I want, I want to take a look at a nice and interesting and informative clip here. So Dennis Prager is interviewing a Harvard professor about his very interesting book about the American Revolution. Let's have a listen.
you know, that makes, that to me makes perfect sense. That you would have felt that you were an American born in another country. Because I believe American values are universal. One of my books is exactly on that thing. We should be exporting American values. How do you resonate, and by the way, I always tell guests it is perfectly okay to disagree with me. So I explain, when I speak on campuses, I explain uh, America's belief system. I call it the American Trinity, and I took it from every coin that we mint. And they are uh, liberty, in God we trust, e pluribus unum. Is that a fair summary of the American value system to you? I think it's a fair summary of um, some of the core principles uh, of the United States. I myself would put it slightly differently. I think the single, the, the most important words in the in the American lexicon are, "We hold these truths to be self-evident." I think those are the that is the most important phrase ever uttered uh, in this country, if not in the entire world. And then that phrase is then followed by four self-evident truths, uh, which each can be summed up in one word, equality, rights, consent, revolution. I think those are the four pillars of the American founding, but the ones that you mentioned is, uh, I think are also a part of the American uh, founding. All right, back to the uh, French Revolution distinction. Go ahead. So their, their founding father is Rousseau, ours is John Locke. Is that correct? That's first distinction? Uh, that is the first distinction. And then I would say the second thing is we established a limited constitutional government, uh, whereas they established um, a government based on Rousseau's concept of the general will, which is a floating abstraction that nobody can actually define. And they they created um, a government with virtually unlimited power to achieve um, an, an unlimited, open-ended moral principle, namely the general will. Therefore, giving the government of, 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 the, of the French Revolution unlimited power to achieve unlimited ends. And the obvious result was the terror and uh, the genocide of approximately 100,000 people uh, during uh, the years of the terror. So when I think of the distinctions between the two revolutions, I think of their liberty, equality, fraternity. That was their motto. And we have what I call the our American Trinity, or even, even what you listed. But you did list equality. But the equalities are different. They are equality of outcome. Ours is equality of opportunity. I think that's right. So um, I would put it slightly differently. Ours is equality of freedom or equality of rights. And their understanding of equality is essentially synonymous with sameness. The end goal was to make all citizens the same. Wow. And if, and that's, what we're, that's what we're living through now, including male and female. Exactly right. And the French Revolution was so radical that they actually uh, attempted to uh, revolutionize, if I can put it uh, in abstract terms, both space and time. And what I mean by that is they completely redrew the map of France. That's the space. They 
yes, that's right. I forgot about that. All right. Professor Thompson, C. Bradley Thompson, America's Revolutionary Mind, up at DennisPrager.com. We continue. So there we have the professor at Clemson. I think I said a different university. But he's discussing what should be obvious now to history and to the world. What was the difference between an Illuminati-inspired overthrow of the monarch, which they called a revolution, which just became an out-of-control, out bloodthirsty butchery of every side against every side, and as we talked about before, whoever could grasp a hold of the guillotine and grab his enemies and have them all guillotined could have could seize the day. And then the following day, that man that man's enemies could be the ones who were controlling the guillotine and could guillotine him and all of his family members and friends. And so for for many long weeks and months, it was an out of control extermination of the public, generally described as a democide. Ultimately, the king, the queen, and many of the people who had rabble-roused the mob in the first place were all guillotined and consumed by the out-of-control violence of the French Revolution. So, far away in the colonies in North America, there were some very well-educated men who had put all of their, their fortune and their fate into the hands of the enterprising British colonies and did not intend to allow Illuminati agents or Jesuit provocateurs or monarchists to overthrow their freedoms in the Americas. And their fight for freedom would be a simple and rational act of unshackling themselves from the monarchical tyranny that they had left behind back in England. And we must not be ignorant of the devices of our enemies. And though we have come far into the future since 1776 and progressed very far into the development of technology and sciences and the internet age, forces of religious imperialism and monarchical dictatorship that we tried to declare independence from long ago have not simply vanished. The Crown Corporation in the city of London, the banking district called the Square Mile, represent the financial creditors to whom we, as a national enterprise, owe our massive and ballooning Federal Reserve debt. And those banking institutions and that debt, they're not gone. In fact, as we move toward an economic collapse and the banking emergency can no longer be hidden from the media headlines and the banking corporations who are holding our national debt in England are going to require the collateral and the entire geographical scope of our nation and all of its wealth will be the default property of the Bank of England as a matter of bankruptcy procedural law. And in another facet of history, the Church of Rome, who has never been content to merely pastor the Catholic believers there in Italy, requires that it have in every land an archdiocese and a local parish, a local center of the Church of Rome there in your city. Why do we not have a Church of New York or a Church of Chicago there in the city of Chicago? England has thought it useful to have established a Church of England. It does not have a Church of Rome to rule over its, or to, to pastor its, its believers. Yet in America, we have no Baptist Church of America or American establishment of a Protestant fellowship. We have many denominated sects, many separated churches, so that no religious imperialism can require that all churches must submit to one orthodoxy or other. There's no imperial religious system to institute one doctrine or another. There's no universal top-down imperial prelates, no god-kings, no infallible high priests to use the state military to exterminate heretics, 
no Roman Church Inquisition here in America. We have been made ignorant by public schools who pass graduates through the grades who are still illiterate. We have been made fools by a propaganda system of disinformation in the media. And we have been made into debtors to a fiat currency that we have to borrow from the same monarchical dictatorship that we claim to have declared independence from. We are twisted into oblivious and monstrous hypocrites dancing on the edge of ruin as the streets are graffitied and the civil society burned by anarchists who demand reparations. Instead of being made aware of the miracle of American independence that allowed for so many millions of slaves to be freed throughout the world, they have been twisted by ideological deformity to believe that if they destroy the last bastion of, of their freedom in the world, that somehow they might be freed. But of course, this is a terrible and horrific lie. And the truth is, is that the population in America has never been so close to being returned to economic and literal enslavement by our enemies. And these same family lines and these same noble aristocracy that have ruled over the old world order are the same ones or the international elite in this emerging new world order. And they know the struggle they are engaged in to destroy our free society and our popular government. And though we have forgotten the cause of our American revolution, our enemies have not forgotten that we are seditious rebels against the crown, that we have thrown off the obligations exacted by the Church of Rome and printed out our own King James Bible and, and taken up the cause of our faith in Jesus Christ ourselves without the priestcraft of the papacy or the meaningless rituals. We have discovered a relationship with God directly through faith. And these enemies, they have not forgotten that we are considered nothing more than a nation of heretics, slaves, and witches. Modernity has not lessened the desperate fight for freedom that our ancestors bequeathed to us. We are a nation of Protestant freemen who overthrew, against impossible odds, imperial tyranny, defeated the world's naval superpower, and ended slavery as a legal institution worldwide. Our enemies will not forget, even if we do. The Bank of England, who is smashing us under this enormous compounding debt, is not there to help us to grow and become economically independent. And the Vatican is not here operating in America for our spiritual wellness. They intend to establish their own imperial power, just as they have over the last six or seven centuries, over all other nations. Uh, you're back here after our break with the Looking Glass Forum. And we're going to go into some clips and go into a few articles here and check a few things out. And I just want to point out that in America, we have a freedom of religion. And we have a separation of church and state so that there is no establishment of any particular religion by the state over any other. And, and this, this is obvious why. Because for centuries and centuries and for a thousand years in Europe, through the Dark Ages... The papacy, the head of the Roman religion, instituted an absolute religious autocracy over all the kings of Europe. And if you didn't bow and kiss the slipper of the Pope, and kiss his ring, and give him dominion over your kingdom, then you were declared a heretic and deposed, and they would make it legal for even a servant to strike down and kill a prince who is rightfully ruling if you would not submit to the Pope. So, obviously, the papacy had magnificent influence and and a ubiquitous control, political authority over all the kingdoms of Europe. And when we broke away from King George III, we were, in fact, breaking away from his temporal power and 
the religious authority that he wielded as he was subjected to the Pope, in so much as that the rejection of his authority as king was a rejection of the authority of the Pope in Rome, because they were one and the same. One and established the other. So, the very concept of popular elections and representative government are antithetical to the whole expansive history of Christendom. That is, medieval kings ruled by archbishops who seek approval from Rome, and in Rome is the Roman Curia, in common parlance, it's the College of Cardinals, and it's almost like a chessboard with all the pieces. Here, in this bishopric in Rome, they have established a high priest. They have voted for him in a kind of pseudo-democratic election process, and he's voted out of the cardinals. And he, today, and there's been many, many permutations of his authority and his dominion and power over history, but today he is the sovereign king in Rome. Many are unaware that the papacy is the head of state, a monarch over the Vatican state which prints its own stamps, has its own currency, and it has its own political authenticity in having a seat and a vote within the United Nations Security Council. So you can imagine how this head of state, this king of Vatican City, this high priest over Roman religion, also has a vote within the United Nations Security Council. Some point out that the entire apparatus of the United Nations Security Council is arranged as a supra-governing body over all the other states with the, the papacy at the center. The Pope wields vast political power, and we are expected to accept his authority, and that he has some kind of divine right by which he can absolve sins, that he can grant clemency and purgatory, and can otherwise send heretics into hell. And that, I mean, that's what happened during the entire Dark Ages, whenever they would declare somebody a heretic and torture them half to death, they would bring them out and burn them at the stake and send them summarily into hell, into hellfire, right? Isn't that the whole point of that? The, the, the Pope could cast people into hell. He could go and buy indulgences from Tetzel, right? You could go buy indulgences, give your, your money to the priest, they would give you a little strip of paper, and in return you could be forgiven for all your sins. So they have the ability to take away your sins or to consign you into hell by your her heretical sins. Isn't that the whole point? That what we're supposed to believe you're supposed to enter into the Catholic Church and believe that, that these men up there in the gowns have the, the, the power to send you into hell. But they probably have the power to capture you by the, the king's authority, by, by the point of the spear and stick you into a dungeon and ultimately kill you. But they certainly didn't have the power to send you to hell. And this is the whole point of the Protestant Reformation. The entire apparatus of the Roman Church hierarchy is expected to kneel, to kiss the gloved hand of the Pope. Is this real Christianity? I mean, is this, is it? That's what we're asking. The early church reformers would not accept the authority of a foreign bishop from far away Rome to dictate over their local church affairs. Martin Luther in Germany in 1517. This is well known. Everyone knows this. If you don't know this, then you're, you're an ignorant fool. You just don't know what's happened to, to lead up to American history in the last couple hundred years. John Calvin in France, John Wycliffe in England, all came to the same conclusion that the Pope of Rome was a political tyrant and not a pastor of the church. This criticism of Roman religion is American. It is Protestant. George Washington knew and understood that to own a King James Version Bible and to read it at home in your own language was a crime against the king in England. It was a crime against the French king and, and the Spanish king. It was a heresy against the Inquisition. The butchery of that Inquisition would burn men alive for possessing even a single page of the New Testament for six centuries. Not for 50 years, for six centuries. This bloody, horrible, religious persecution of Rome went on. That's what drove the Puritans into America. That's what drove the American 
free men to fight for their freedom because they knew what was back in England. So men, men back in England and across Europe being burned alive for possessing even a single page of a New Testament. If you don't believe me, go and look it up. Try me. See if you find any fault with my facts. This is well-known history. This is the religion that is predominantly taking up your time when you're celebrating, taking two and three weeks off work to go and celebrate Christmas. This is Roman religion. The Protestants didn't celebrate Christmas. In fact, George Washington attacked the British on Christmas night when they were getting drunk and, and spending their money on the whores. They weren't ready. George Washington attacked them Christmas night across the Delaware. It's just a fact of history. You need to go ahead and check your history so you can understand what it is to be an American. So we will be con continuously inflicted by these ideological and radical communist positions that are tearing at the fabric of our society that try to pit people against each other based on their race or their gender or their class or you know how much money they make. And so this kind of ideological trap that's going to create internecine conflict and social distress among neighbors and people that are, should be a, creating a tranquil society, they're stirring up and rabble-rousing, mobbing, looting, and burning. And these are all calculations. Calculations by people that are have set these political forces into motion. They're bought and paid for. So as we're discussing these kind of ideological nuances that are taking place across our culture, let's listen to Dave Rubin and Ben Shapiro kind of break it down, how it's really an ideological construct that pretends to be a virtuous campaign of racial justice, but ultimately it's just a communist killing squad that's preparing to target individuals within our society. Recently, this morning, there was a judge who's, who woke up to have her son killed. I think if you look at the news, he answered the door. It was someone dressed as a FedEx driver, and he was killed on the, his doorstep. So that, that's, that's where the culture is starting to move towards here, politically. So it's really a war. It's a political warfare, and we need to recognize that. So here we'll listen to Dave Rubin and Ben Shapiro. But Matt Iglesias had the temerity to sign that letter. And then Ezra Klein was like, there are a lot of people who stand up for the for free speech who are really doing this because it's a way of gaining power. And for a lot of people, this is, on the left, this is how they think of things, right? All human relationships are power dynamics. There are no big principles that we all share, like freedom of speech matters. That's just a bunch of people who are seeking to use the principle of freedom of speech uh, as a yes, weapon yes. in order to reenact the hierarchy, in order to preserve the hierarchy. And this argument you see being made more and more by folks yeah. on the left, which yeah. is that rights are not actually universal principles that we all should hold to. Rights are just a way for me to shut you up while I'm still speaking. Right? And that's and I, I think that the, the liberal left has been somewhat warm to that argument for, for a while, at least warm enough that they're willing to hear it, and they just didn't see it turning on them at any point. The left moved so far so fast that the liberals were like, we were with you up until the point where you started canceling us, and then we realized, oh wait, that was a that was a bad mistake, right? Iglesias was one of the guys who was like cheering on there's no cancel culture, cancel the cancellation yeah. doesn't exist, and then the, and then it came for him, and he yeah. was like, uh, this is bad, right guys? It's like, yes, it's bad. Well, yes, thank you for recognizing it as bad. Do you love seeing that now, where there's this moved by them now, AOC's doing this and a bunch of other people to completely tell us that cancel culture it doesn't even exist. It it's doesn't exist. Figment of your imagination. Yeah. Figment of your when she's not explaining that, that people are shooting each other in the inner city for bread. For, for bread. Right, which is, that, that's, that's why you should wonder all hungry. their playground is because they're hungry. Yeah. Uh, that's what I do when I'm hungry. You know, I say to my wife, are we out of cereal? She says, yes, and I immediately go and shoot somebody in the face. That's 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 the way I deal with my own personal anger. Yeah. But, it, but yeah. when she's not saying that sort of stuff, th this is becoming a very popular notion on the left, which is that all America is a group of people who are dispossessed and the people who are victimizers. And 
many principle that exists in the system, that is the victimizing system, again, this goes back to the, the Kennedy point or the Robin DiAngelo point, any aspect of that system is inherently bad and reinforces a power hierarchy, and so you must remove those systems of power in order to allow the dispossessed to claim their full share of the earth. You're a sci-fi guy. Do you sort of admire the beauty of their evil? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, really, it is a level, like, I to mean, create a system that, that proves itself. Yeah, it's, in and of itself is the proof. Like, there's a certain beauty to that. Oh, it's as, as, as it's, evil as it is. It's super clever. I mean, yeah. the, the argument is completely circular, right? Yeah. They, they just say, you're a racist. And you say, well, but you have no evidence of my racism. And they say, well, you don't even recognize your own racism. And you say, well, then, how am I racist? They say, because you're complicit in a system of racism. You say, right, but the system isn't, isn't racist. Like, you can't point to something that's racist. No, but it results in racial inequality. And therefore, it is a racist system. And therefore, you're complicit in the system. And therefore, you're a racist. And you say, okay, well, but all systems perpetuate racial inequality. By even saying that, you're demonstrating your white fragility, which means you're a racist, right? Like, this is basic Salem witch trial. If you sink, then you're innocent, and if you float, then you're a witch. Yeah, all right, so a lot of this actually is very much the point of the book. So Ben Shapiro is making the point that we're looking at really an ideological weapon designed to reduce its opponents to a catch-22. So as we're going forward here, we're looking at really the long-term, big-picture historical scope and the influences of geopolitics as they're starting to affect, ultimately, what happens in the street corner and in the back streets of all the cities of America. These different political forces are able to influence through the media and through direct action of street violence. They're starting to push us in a direction, and we need to try to understand what is really taking place. And we have to understand that those larger political forces are regressive. And they really want to take us back in time. They want to really ruin the delicate artifice of our popular government. So we have to understand what has been happening in the past few hundred years with the institutions of the world as this upstart of the American nation has really broken all traditions and created the unthinkable in a democratic republic, a popular government, which would have no church state. So we're going to take a closer look at the roots and the doctrine at work within the religious dynamics of the Roman church. Churches are wonderful and powerful places of worship and biblical teaching. Churches share the gospel of Christ in every city. But we have a controversy surrounding the church of Rome. For the first 300 years of church history, the Christian cult was absolutely condemned and illegal. It was punishable by death. So that we must never forget that the persecution against Christian followers by the imperial Roman officers began with Jesus Christ himself, who died at the hands of Roman soldiers on a Roman execution stake. That symbol of the Roman instrument of death is a horrific image, and many millions were left to die slowly on a Roman crucifixion long before they took and hung the Lord on the cross. After that period in Jerusalem, the apostles, all twelve of the apostles, were rounded up and were killed by Roman officers over the course of a manhunt. And most of them were tortured and imprisoned. You need to go and check your history on that. All 12. And many of the followers that came after them, they were disciples of those men, were also killed. Caesar would have no king besides himself. You have to remember that was what Pontius Pilate asked him. He said, I have heard you are a king. Is that so? That's what it was all about. How could Jesus Christ be the king of the Jews if Caesar, who had just recently broken the Republic of Rome to become a tyrant, a dictator, if Caesar could be the only king, there could be no other rival king. So this, these are the politics that ultimately led to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ 
on a Roman cross. And this continuous roundup for these dangerous criminals would continue, and the cult of Christ was absolutely forbidden. And the whole situation was, as far as having the Roman legions, Pontius Pilate, the governor, the Roman governor of Caesar there, a matter of Judea becoming another province of the Roman Imperium. So after this time, Jerusalem would ultimately be conquered. Its walls were torn down, the whole city was burned, the whole temple area was absolutely destroyed by the Romans. I believe it was Titus, who was the, who was the general. So this cult of Christ was that was arising out of Jerusalem was absolutely forbidden by law, and all who were found to harbor Christian symbols or believers were thrown into the gladiator arena to be murdered for sport. And this was to be a continuous persecution that, was, that would last for 300 years. No Roman was permitted to have any king but Caesar. That's Roman law. There was no Roman church except those who met secretly in the crypts and the underground sewers below beneath Rome, practicing their beliefs in secret. 300 years of this until Constantine would become emperor and the Roman church was born. And today the theology of the Roman religion is established by an unchangeable and immutable code of canon law. And these are the tenets of doctrinal truth that Roman theologians are beholden to. These declarations of St. Augustine of Origen and Jerome and the Council of Trent, which declares that any who will not submit to the papacy are heretics who are to be destroyed. That's a matter of their religion and their, their code of law. These anathemas against Jews and heretics are unchanging. This monstrous persecution and slaughter of the, the state church of Rome was just another permutation, another extension of the Roman instrumentality of imperial conquest. And another point to be made about the doctrinal code of the Roman religion, we might point out that they required their religious control over all the other churches to be absolute. So that Rome is the center of all Christendom, all Christianity, and it's like the, the holy city from which all authority and religiosity springs. And there, crowned at the center, is the high priest, the, the highest of all bishops, to whom all the other bishops around the world, the Bishop of Jerusalem, the Bishop of Constantinople, the Bishop of every, all the other bishops and archbishops and all the other pastors over all the other churches of the world must submit to the absolute supremacy of this Roman bishop. And his fatherhood being the papa, the, the papacy, so when you're in the Roman church, you will call all the priests father, Father Smith, Father Collins, Father Mulligan, whatever. And that paternity, that fatherhood, that spiritual fatherhood that that priest has over the church as a pastor is coming down to him from the Holy Father there in Rome. And he's the one who has all the, the merit and the spiritual charisms or spiritual merit by which he can absolve all the other sins. So you can see that these kind of doctrinal dynamics are separate from the biblical concepts that we find within the New Testament. And these ideas of overarching supreme authority of one bishop over all the others are really just an extension of the Imperium of the emperors of Rome. And we will see that really was Constantine who crowned himself as the Bishop of Rome, and he was the first Pope. And that authority and that power and that seat as the Emperor and the High Priest of the religious system into one, united in one man. And really, we see that the Curia, the College of Cardinals, is really the Roman Senate. And as we slowly progress through time, through the centuries, we can see that the Roman hierarchy itself is little more than the occult system of the Caesars. And that political tyranny, which broke the sovereign Republic of Rome so many centuries ago.
Now we'll look at a very interesting document here that you can find on the internet at heretication.info and it's entitled Christianity and its Persecution of Heretics. It starts out with a interesting quote by Thomas Hobbes in his book Leviathan, 1588-1679. They that approve a private opinion call it opinion, but they that mislike it call it heresy, and yet heresy signifies no more than private opinion. Take a look at this interesting historical breakdown from their point of view, basically how they deal with the facts and how they treat the history itself, how they work it out. So we'll start here. <clears throat> Towards the end of the second century, so we're talking about around 300 years, Uranius, Bishop of Lyons, saw the dangers of numerous religious opinions developing. He attempted to establish an orthodoxy, a unified body of teaching, he wrote, a volume of five-volume work against heresies, or whatever they decided heresies were, and it was he who compiled a canon of New, New Testament. He also claimed that there was only one proper church, outside of which there could be no salvation. Other Christians were heretics, and should be expelled, and if possible, destroyed. This is the political position. The first Christian emperor of Rome agreed. And like we said, this is the first Christian emperor. So this is going to be emperor of Rome, who's now united with this new spiritual power as the head bishop of Rome and the emperor in one man. So and it says here that the first Christian emperor of Rome agreed with this and Gibbon summarizes the edict which announces the destruction of various heretics. So not only would Constantine take on the title of the high priest and bishop of the Roman church, but he would also establish a persecution against all other forms of belief that they would call heresy. And this is how it went. After a preamble filled with passion and reproach, Constantine absolutely prohibits the assemblies of the heretics and confiscates their public property to the use either of the revenue or of the Catholic Church. This, the sects against whom the imperial severity was directed appear to have been the adherents of Paul of Samosato, the Modernists of Phrygia, who maintained an enthusiastic succession of prophecy, the Novatians who sternly rejected the temporal efficacy of repentance, and the Marcionites and Valentinians under whose leading banners of various Gnostics of Asia and Egypt had insensibly rallied, and perhaps the Manicheans who had recently imported from Persia a more artful composition of Oriental and Christian theology. The design of extirpating the name, or at least of restraining the progress of these odious heretics, was prosecuted with vigor and effect. Some of the penal regulations were copied from the Edicts of Diocletian, so they're going to pull some of these new church regulations outlawing Christians from the previous era of persecution. The Diocletian persecution against Christian believers was absolutely horrifying and bloody. So, some of these penal regulations were copied from the Edicts of Diocletian, and this method of conversion was applauded by the same bishops who had felt the hand of oppression earlier and had pleaded for human rights. Further laws against heresy appear in 380 AD under the Christian emperor Theodosius I, who laid down the new rule. So, you can see here that the Christian emperor Theodosius I is also assuming the headship as bishop of the Roman church. And so over time, he's going to be requiring that all the other bishops of all the other church areas around him and around the world all submit to his authority. So this is going to be a rise of an imperial throne taking on a religious facade 
a Christian religious facade and using it to extend his power. So not only does he have temporal power, this king, this emperor over a throne, and a time and a place, but he also has spiritual dominion also that he's going to develop over, over the course of centuries here as it passes from one man to the next. So it's a, it's a chain of succession of power that's handed down from one to the next. Further laws against heresy appear in 380 under Christian Emperor Theodosius, who laid down the new rule. We command that those persons who follow this rule shall embrace the name of Catholic Christians. The rest, however, whom we adjudge demented and insane, shall sustain the infamy of heretical dogmas. Their meeting places shall not receive the name of churches, and they shall be smitten first by divine vengeance and secondly by the retribution of our own initiative, which we shall assume in accordance with divine judgment. So you can see they're taking on the patina of religiosity and self-righteousness and authorizing themselves in the name of God to make enemies with the other Christians outside their particular church organization, their city. So, so Rome, as an imperial state, hadn't really changed much, even though it had taken on, you know, it absorbed the... Uh, the titular trappings of Christian bishopric, they, they really didn't operate as a Christian church at all. They were just still operating as an imperial power. So it goes on. St. Augustine, A.D. 354-430, taught the error that error has no rights. He cited biblical texts to justify the use of compulsion. According to Augustine, coercion using great violence was justified in converting heretics or destroying them. He made a distinction between unbelievers who persecuted because of cruelty as against Christians who persecuted because of love. A war to preserve or restore the unity of the Church of Rome was a just war, a bellum dio actor, a war waged by God himself. He was also found a way to avoid churchmen getting blood on their hands, dissension against the church mounted to dissension against the state, so anyone condemned by the church should be punished by the state. Centuries in the future, such ideas would culminate in the activities of the Inquisition, which also required the secular authority to execute its judgment of blood. Augustine is often recognized explicitly as the father of the Inquisition, since he was responsible for adopting Roman methods of torture for the purposes of the Church in order to ensure uniformity. Already in AD 385, very early in Church history, the first recorded executions for heresy had been carried out under Emperor Maximus at the request of Spanish bishops. Priscillian, Bishop of Avila, had been charged with witchcraft, though this... Though his real crime seems to have been agreeing with Gnostic opinions, along with his companions, he was tried and tortured. They confessed and were executed. The church now had precedents from which both witch hunting and for persecuting heretics with a moral underpinning provided by St. Augustine. The Christian emperor Justinian issued severe laws against heretics in AD 527 and 528. Henceforth, those who dissented from the authorized line were debarred from public office, forbidden to practice professional certain professions, prohibited from holding meetings, and denied the civil rights of a Roman citizen. For them, said Justinian, to exist is sufficient. For the time being, in the middle of the 5th century, Pope Leo the Great commended the emperor for torturing and executing heretics on behalf of the Church of Rome. In theory, heresy was the denial of some essential Christian doctrine publicly and obstinately. In practice, any deviation from the currently orthodox line could be judged heretical. By the 5th century, there were 
over a hundred active statutes in the empire concerning heresy. So this is the empire church. So you have to understand that, that the church had taken on something monstrous. It was no longer just local Christian fellowships spread across the landscape. These were a centralized hierarchy of Roman imperialism that was now using the Christian church as a mechanism for its expansion and power. And now we're actively empowering the local authorities to round up and kill anyone who didn't agree with them. So back to the text here. From St. Augustine onward, for well over a thousand years, virtually all Christian theology and theologians agreed that heretics should be persecuted, and most agreed that they should be killed. Heresy was explicitly identified as akin to leprosy. It was a disease that threatened to destroy a healthy body of believers if they strayed from the church's absolute view of religious orthodoxy. Just as leprosy was a disease that threatened the healthy bodies of individuals if they strayed from the church's views of sexual orthodoxy. Diseases like this had to be eradicated at all costs. St. Thomas Aquinas thought it virtuous to burn heretics and favored the option of burning them alive. From around the turn of the millennium, executing heretics became ever more common and the grounds for doing so ever more unlikely. group of Christians in Goslar in Germany who declined to kill chickens were executed for heresy in 1051. A long series of popes supported the extirpation of those who disagreed with the current papal line. Arnold of Brescia, a pupil of Aberlard, shared his master's critical views of the church and also embraced the republican ideals of ancient Rome. He held that papal authority was a usurpation and that the wealth and power of the church was unchristian. He led a movement to reestablish a Roman republic and return the clergy to apostolic poverty. He was hanged and then burned as a heretic. In 1155 by Pope Adrian IV. The Waldensians, the Baudois, followers of Peter Waldo of Lyon in the French mountains, provided the next major target. They gave their money to the poor, preached the Christian gospel. Waldo attracted the hatred of the clergy when he commissioned a translation of the Bible into Akitan, the language of what is now southern France. The heresies of the Waldensians were numerous. Having read the Bible for themselves, they denied the temporal authority of the priests and of the Pope and objected to papal corruption. They rejected the numerous accreations, including the Mass, prayers to the dead, indulgences for the absolution of sin, confessions for the absolution of sin, penances for the absolution of sin, church music, the reciting of biblical texts in Latin, which no one could understand, except for just a few educated people, the adoration of saints who were dead, the adoration of the sacrament, killing, and the swearing of oaths. They also allowed women to preach. They were excommunicated as heretics in 1184 at the Council of Verona and persecuted with the zeal for centuries. 150 were burned at Grenoble in a single day in 1393. Survivors fled to the remote valleys in the Alps. Pope Innocent VIII organized a crusade against them in an unsuccessful attempt to extirpate the entire population of them. They were still being persecuted centuries later. In Piedmont, in the middle of the 7th century, during attempts were made to extirpate them, anyone in Valero who declined to go to a Roman Catholic Mass was likely to be crucified upside down. But there was some variation in the manner of killing in other towns. Some were maimed and left to die of starvation. Some had strips of their flesh cut off their bodies until they bled to death. Some were stoned. Some were impaled alive upon stakes or hooks. Some were dragged along the ground until 
their flesh was scraped away. One at least was literally minced. Daniel Rambal had his toes and fingers cut off in sections, one joint being amputated each day in an attempt to make him recant and accept the Roman faith. Some had their mouths stuffed with gunpowder, which was then ignited. Paul Garnier of Roras, which is R-O-R-A-S, was castrated, then skinned alive. Children were killed in various ways before the eyes of their parents. Those few who escaped to the mountains were most mostly killed by exposure, starvation, or disease. The term heresy covered even more and more areas of belief. So, we'll just stop it there. This continues on. and We haven't even got up to the formal Roman Church Inquisition, or even to the, you know, the Thirty Years' War, which was the Protestant war against the Catholics in Europe, or even up to World War One and World War Two, which were really just continuations of the Thirty Years' War, and really had the same effect, including millions of people that were not Orthodox were being, and who were Jews, were basically murdered, which is the same thing that happened during the Inquisition. So we're going to get into more of this discussion later about whether we can really say that the religion of Romanism, we have to question whether it's really Christianity. A lot of its traditions go back to the ancient pagan philosophies, and that's where we're going to really find this quickening of the spirit of anti-Semitism that's rising out of this the church state of Rome, ultimately, that we're seeing has a lot of Mithraic and Persian pagan doctrines. So, for instance, the reason why you're going to practice Christmas, which is purportedly the day that Christ was born on December 25th, is because it's really the winter solstice. It's the three longest nights of the year when the northern hemisphere is the lowest on the on the ecliptic on, on its axis, and and we're at the dead of winter. We're at the the darkest night of the year, and the Druids understood that this was the time when the sun god would be reborn. So the, the sun god would die each year, and for these three days, the sun god would, would, would die. And then from the, the, these days, after these three darkest days, the, the earth would begin to turn on its axis back towards summer, and the winter would begin to end. And the, so December 25th is the high black mass of paganism, and has never been associated with Christianity. It was practiced for centuries, a thousand years, in Imperial Rome, before and after the Caesars, as Saturnalia. So Saturnalia was a, a pagan celebration. It was very lewd, very perverse, lots of orgies, and it was dedicated to the god Saturn. So it was called Saturnalia. So ultimately, how this would become Christ's birthday, we'll have to see in later episodes. Alright, so thanks for being with us at Looking Glass Forum, and we'll talk to you guys next time.